it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. A social it. distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and uh, today, March 8th, is uh, International Women's Day. And I don't know about you, but it seems like it's being recognized more this year than ever before, although a, a Women's Day has been in existence uh, in various parts of the world uh, off and on, going back all the way to 1909 when it was first organized um, by the Socialist Party of America. They organized a Women's Day in New York City on February 28, 1909. And uh, in 1910, the International Socialist Women's Conference um, proposed that a special Women's Day be organized annually. Um, after women gained suffrage in Soviet Russia in 1917, March 8th became a national holiday there. Um, the United Nations uh, officially uh, adopted it as a global celebration um, in 1977. Commemoration of International Women's Day ranges from being a public holiday in some countries to being largely ignored elsewhere. In some places, it's a day of protest. In others, it is a day that celebrates womanhood. On the Tom Sumner program, today is a day that we're going to uh, recognize some women authors that have written about women, including uh, coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, authors uh, Katie Kay and Claire Shipman, authors of uh, the New York Times bestseller, Womenomics came out with a new book last month that uh, um, Little Miss Flint has a starring role in. It's called Living the Confidence Code, the Science and Art of Self-Assurance, What Women Should Know. Before that, in the second hour of our three-hour tour, um, 
author Michelle Moore uh, is uh, president and founder of Mother's Grace. She has a book called A Mother's Grace, Healing the World One Woman at a Time. But before that, we're uh, coming up in just a, just a moment or so. We're going to talk by phone with um, uh, a journalist and author named Julia Cook. And uh, she's written a lot about travel, but she has written a, a very interesting book called Come Fly the World, The Jet Age Story of the Women of Pan Am. This is a, a fun and interesting conversation, but it should, should be an interesting uh, conversation, whether you're a woman or not, it, International Women's Day. And, and no jokes, not a lot of uh, humor about women, although... You know, having been married kind of a lot, I, I certainly have a few. But, but we'll, we'll give that a rest today for International Women's Day and take it a little bit more seriously as we uh, get a chance to talk with these um, journalists and authors about various uh, aspects. And we may have, uh, March is um, Women's Month, and we may have a, a, a few other carryovers throughout the rest of the month, but... Uh, but today we celebrate International Women's Day, and up next, Julia Cook. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. I guess this hour um, is a journalist who has been published in Time, Smithsonian, Condé Nast, Traveler, and more. And she has a, a new book that uh, highlights the glamour, danger, and liberation associated with the jet age story of the women of Pan Am. The book is called Come Fly the World by Julia Cook. And Julia Cook joins me by phone. Hi, Julia. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, how did a journalist like you um, decide to tell a story like this? Um, accidentally, interestingly <laughs> enough. Um, I, I was living in New York, and I had often, well, where I was writing about um, travel and culture, including a fair amount of writing about art and architecture. Um, and I heard about an event uh, that was being held at the TWA Flight Center, at JFK, which is this beautiful, beautiful building um, built in the late 50s by Eero Saarinen, um, who was one of the, the eminent uh, architects of the, the jet age. Spoken like a true um, architecture writer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it is totally worth visiting for anyone who's going to New York or in New York. Now it's a hotel, um, which is awesome. But back then, you could only tour it um, at when people held events there. So my, my dad had actually worked for Pan Am. He was an attorney with the airline until um, it went bankrupt. Uh, and so I knew about the Pan Am Historical Foundation, and I saw that they were hosting an event there. Um, and I went, and uh, I wound up you know, on the sidelines talking to this group of women who were former um, stewardesses, they told me, not flight attendants. They were stewardesses because they had worked in the era in which that was the term. Um, and, you know, they, they seem to uh, make a distinction between the job as it was performed back then and the job that is performed today, which is flight attendant. Really? How so? Um, and, I, yeah, well, so it was a very different time, obviously. Um, 
the thing to keep in mind about flying in the, the late 50s and early 60s and mid 60s um, especially is that that the world was a very different place back then it was there was the Cold War um, there, was, there had been rapid decolonization all across the world and so there were all of these new countries um, who were trying to figure out what their allegiances were um, whether to the, the capitalist West or to the Soviet Union um, and there were the, amid amid all of this, um, you know, a, a globe in a moment of transition. Uh, there was this new technology, which was the jet plane, which had only just launched in '58, um, and cut down the amount of time uh, that was spent in the air drastically. So all of a sudden, people had easy access to corners of the world that had never really been accessible before. Um, and so the the way that people were moving around the world was very different. Um, so that that's the primary difference between the then and the now. But there are there are other differences, like um, the fact that hijacking was uh, kind of a novelty thing. Um, it was not as deadly as it later proved to be. Um, it was, it, but it happened with some frequency. Um, there were a lot more refugees uh, traveling by air, so the stewards were expected to um, deal with them. And um, celebrities, you know, private travel wasn't a, really a thing back then. Celebrities were flying Pan Am. Diplomats um, were flying Pan Am. Pan Am ran a press charter for the White, uh, for the White House that, that followed Air Force One. Um, the list goes on. And, and how did you come to decide to go to this, uh, this conference or, or um, uh, event um, there at, at JFK, was it because you wanted to see the building, or or were you interested in? It really was. I, I, I thought it might have been. Yeah, I, I really wanted. I wanted to tour the building. Um, it was a really happy accident that I um, uh, I wound up meeting these women, and I was just I was so impressed by them. You know, the 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 places they had been and the experiences that they had really led them to talk about the world and, and global events with such authority and intimacy, and I was completely entranced. Now, you talked about the, the, the linguistic difference between uh, stewardesses and flight attendants, um, but there were some pretty rigid requirements to be a stewardess. Have those requirements changed in the age of flight attendants, do you think? They have, thankfully. A lot of those requirements were, were really deeply sexist. Um, they w- Women were required to meet certain physical requirements, uh, which, uh, you know, everyone can understand how that's sexist. They had to be a certain height and weight and um, meet certain beauty standards, uh, which were explicit. Uh, and they had to be under 26 years um, old. Exactly, which is a little more insidious. You know, they had to be under 26. They had to quit when they got married or turned 32 or 35 on different airlines. Um, and, you know, that was intended to keep women young and with the aura of uh, sexual availability because the, the majority of, of frequent flyers were men. And so airlines really wanted, um, uh, you know, the, these passengers to, to think of traveling as, you know, and, and the young, attractive women possibly available on the flights, crewing the flights, as a perk of that travel. Well, in, in, and in those days, and we're talking about 1966 to 1975, it, 
a lot of people flying it was it it was somewhat glamorous people dressed up and i I remember being uh, very young in those eight in those years and you know i did get to fly a couple of times uh, transcontinentally and um I, i always felt like james bond when i was on an airplane and 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 the stewardesses were part of that that glamour and that that image Totally. I mean, and it makes sense. You, know, you have to keep in mind that the glamour back then, it was a, a 360 thing. You know, the, the airlines worked really hard to project glamour both um, on the ground with their advertising and, and with, you know, the the stewardesses. And this is not just Pan Am. On, on a lot of different airlines, the uniforms were designed by, um, you know, the couturiers of the day. Um, we've got Cassini and then Pucci and... Um, Christian Dior designed the Air France uh, uniforms for a long time. So, you know, there, there, was, there was glamour that um, was happening via architecture and um, fashion design and branding. And then there was the glamour of, of what happened in the air. And, you know, they, um, they had menus designed by famous restaurants. They really put a lot of effort into the food and cocktail service. Um, there was, you know, fine china aboard. Um, and you know, there was a cost to all of this. Flying was very expensive back then, um, and so it was really an undertaking that only happened um, infrequently. It was something to look forward to. I, I thought it was kind of interesting, as sexist as it as it was in terms of the requirements for stewardesses, they were also um, not just supposed to be young and beautiful, but they were required to have a college degree and speak two languages and and be somewhat savvy politically um and and that was a little different than other jobs that young women might have sought in those days totally on on pan am what one of the things that really interested me was the duality of what was expected of, of the women um, who flew internationally and on Pan Am and, and specifically. Pan Am was not the only airline in the U.S. that flew internationally, but it was the only airline that only flew internationally. Um, so, you know, every time you got on a Pan Am plane, you were guaranteed to, to get off the plane in a foreign country. And this meant that the women had to be able to speak multiple languages because every flight was going to someplace that, you know, probably spoke a different language um, than than English. So, so they needed onboard um, translators. And so these women were expected to, to be both, um, you know, really smart. You know, keep in mind that with all of this international travel, there was a lot of cultural differences. Um, they, the women had to be able to navigate. Um, they had to have a really high degree of, 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 of cultural savvy um, and, you know, knowledge uh, based in fact. And um, they had to be able to explain, uh, keep in mind, again, that, that air travel was really new. So a lot of people were um, nervous and, and asked a lot of technical questions about how flight was happening. So they had to be able to explain the um, the mechanics, the physics of, of flight to a, a lay passenger who wanted to know about it. So these, these were really bright women. Um, and I was really intrigued by this concept that, you know, they were, they were very smart women, um, well-educated, well-prepared, um, and they were expected to be that, but also subjected to these really sexist rules and regulations. More with journalist and author Julia Cook 
straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated, it's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with journalist and author Julia Cook straight ahead. Interestingly, um, there was a time when black women were encouraged to become stewardesses. Yeah, so the way that that happened was um, the the early 60s, late 50s and early 60s, um, black women were um, beginning to apply for airline jobs just like white women were. It was a really coveted job for all American women. Um, At some point it was listed as the most sought-after job by um, college seniors, or high school seniors, rather, sorry. Um, and and these these um, African American women were summarily turned down, um, just over and over and over again. These are women who met the exact same requirements as their white counterparts. It was just sheer racism. Um, and you know, so to, to the extent that some of my research revealed really blatant um, racist statements uh, from the airline executives who openly admitted that they they didn't want to lose market share um, by hiring black women uh, to crew on their flights. So then, you know, the um, Equal Employment Opportunity Act was passed in um, 1964, and from then on, it was a pretty pretty dramatic turnaround, uh, a 180. The airlines began to recruit among the black community um, because they wanted uh, to be meeting the, the requirements of, of the EEOC. So all of a sudden, these um, young women who, you know, really, they should have been being hired all along, obviously, um, but they, they began to, to have this opportunity to fly um, just like any other American woman. And, and as, as you uh, said, Julia, the, um, these were really coveted jobs, largely because we didn't have the Internet. People weren't interacting with, with um, other countries the way we do now with, with cable television and the Internet and lots and lots of travel. And, and so there was this, and thus the name of the book, Come Fly the World. That was almost like a slogan. You can see places you'd never see otherwise. And it was considered kind of an adventure. Totally, and especially for women. You know, I think it's really easy for women, especially uh, my age and younger. I'm in my mid-30s, and um, it's really easy for us who have grown up with the ability to travel um, on our own and, and more or less go where we want to go, uh, to forget that in the in the 50s, um, as recent as the 50s, it wasn't really socially acceptable for a young woman to travel alone um, unless she came from the unless she was white and came from the upper classes. Uh, so really, it, it you know these women were. Um, it was a brand new freedom. It was a really new, enticing, um, exciting opportunity. And it was fairly new for women to even be in the workplace. That was really kind of an advent of, of World War II and beyond. So it was fairly uncommon for women to even be working. Absolutely. And, and you know, women, women in the workplace, you know, the only... Uh, completely, totally socially acceptable jobs for women to take, you know, that no one would question were um, secretary, nurse, librarian, teacher, um, and stewardess. And so if you think about the, the opportunities afforded to all of those, only one of those jobs really gives you, gives you the ability to, 
to get out into the world and do things with new kinds of people. And it satisfied a level of curiosity about um, different places. You know, no matter what airline you crewed on, there are uh, there were opportunities to see different places and to, to go places by yourself. The level of independence that was enabled um, was incredible. And Pan Am was... Um somewhat a a leader in international travel, wasn't it? Pan Am was the airline of firsts. Um, the, the list of them is really remarkable. If you look back in flight history in the 1920s when the first um, commercial flights were happening, it was the first American airline to operate permanent international flights, to use radio, to serve meals in the air. In the 30s, it was the first to operate scheduled transatlantic passenger service. In the 40s, it was the first to run a, a round-the-world flight and to provide tourist class service outside of the U.S. The list goes on. It includes really glamorous jet travel, and it also includes really gritty and scary um, involvement with the American conflicts of the year as well. And when you decided to do this um, this book, Julia, what what was it about that era and Pan Am that interested you most and and enough that that you felt there was a book in it i was really interested by the role that these women had played you know as i mentioned i was interested in in the duality the the fact that they were perceived as being this you know these glamour pusses of the air um and and yet the reality of the job was much more gritty much more um much much harder uh, and and a lot more. It had a lot more content. They 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 acted like diplomats. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. When they crewed on war flights, in particular, these women were were performing the roles of you know um, therapist, uh, <laughs> yeah. girlfriend, um, you know, uh, cheerleader. Uh, they were they bartender. Were really, um, they were expected to bartend. Well, yeah. And and then you know they were also they they were truly. Um, they were they were enacting what we would now call soft diplomacy or soft power um, on a global international level um, in these these very sensitive flights uh, in a way that wouldn't become popularized or really even understood until um, the 90s and beyond. So they really were the forerunners of, of a lot of what we now consider, you know, commonplace things in the globalized marketplace. Did you know in that initial? I, I, well, let me ask this differently. In that initial meeting with those former stewardesses at the event you went to at JFK, um, how how much did they help in terms of finding people to tell these stories and, and to do the research you needed to do for the book? Did it start right they then and so there? Helpful. It didn't start right then and there. I, I wound up going. I started going to more of the Pan Am Historical Foundation's um, events to just meet more and more women. And then, you know, eventually, once I had a, once I'd met, you know, a half dozen or a dozen of these women, um, they they started introducing me to their friends. And I found out about a, an organization called World World Wings International, which is the association of former Pan Am flight crews. Um, they have conferences which are amazing. They they pull like. 500-odd women um, and some men, uh, because men were allowed to start flying on Pan Am from 1972 on. They'd always been somewhat, you know, allowed, kind of. Some, A few were hired, but um, they were hired in, in much greater numbers from 72 on after a lawsuit. But um, anyway, I, I went to these <laughs> conferences, and uh, these women were just 
like so much fun. We had a great time, um, and and you know they would all. I would sit at a table for dinner with them, and you know we'd we'd drink wine and talk, and they would all say, you know, the next day, you know, oh well, you've got to meet so and so. She has a great story about this thing, and you know, you you absolutely have to talk to this person. Um, and they they kind of once it, once the ball got rolling, it really it, it really rolled. And most people, when you say a great story, and you're talking about that period of time of flying. And, and stewardesses, it's it's usually some guy bragging that, you know, that that he slept with a stewardess or or, or something. But you're talking about some some really uh, almost international intrigue in some cases. What were some of the stories that you found the most surprising or the most interesting from some of these uh, women? Yeah, if, you know, it, I would have found it interesting if, if anyone had told me a story about about sleeping with stewardesses because that's really not that's not. I, I think there's some you know gendered <laughs> differences between the stories that people tell. Yeah, but uh, we've seen that in television and movies from that era. You know that that was um, it, it, again. It throws back to the image that the airlines wanted stewardesses to portray. Yeah, it, it definitely does, and it also throws back to a book called Coffee, Tea, or Me, um, <laughs> which was published in 1968 um, and started uh, an, an avalanche, really, of um, of books and comics and movies that really played, that hammered hard on the um, the sexy stewardess trope. Um, and, and really, you know, in reality, that, that book, it, it, was, it held the byline of, of two stewardesses on Eastern Airlines, but it was really written by a man. Um, who who just you know used these women's names to publish it? So you know the, the women that I talked to, they some of them were really kind of you know they they laugh about that and they they found it really funny that that anyone had thought that they were all just you know out out to meet the men on the job when in reality they were they were really they were they took the job because it offered financial empowerment, um, independence from families and boyfriends. Um, and it gave them the opportunity to travel and to do things on their own. So they, they think it's funny that anyone would, would um, think that they were taking the job to, to get dates for the most part. Um, it, it, so the stories that I heard really had much more to do with um, really um, interesting and, and, and crazy uh, and, and really important um, global events. So I heard a lot of stories about... Um, you know, one of the major episodes in, in my book is Operation Babylift, which was a, a series of refugee flights out of um, Saigon at the very end of the Vietnam War. Um, and the women who had crewed on, on those flights, the first flight in particular, which, you know, a number of the women in my book um, were on, had a very, you know, very impactful and very serious and very dangerous experience on on um, on some of those flights. So it was a far cry from the... Um, the, the the glamorous and sexy stewardesses, um, which is not to say that they weren't also glamorous and, and beautiful. I think it was really interesting to, as I was doing the research, to think about how just because a woman's beautiful, um, a lot of her more serious stories tend to get minimized. And, and uh, there's a lot of Vietnam-related uh, 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 stories in the book, um, largely because of the, the role that 
that Pan Am played in in having uh, or adding runs rather from Saigon to Hong Kong for soldiers that would get some leave time but only had so much time so they would take these flights and go spend a few days in in Hong Kong um, how 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 did that come about how did Pan Am decide well you know we should offer these junkets for uh, American GI serving in Vietnam yeah so in 1966 um, the government the US government which was starting to draft men into the Vietnam War um, which was had gone from you know being a, a, a lower level conflict which was not declared a war um, into a, a, a draftable uh, war, which still had not been declared a war, but anyway. Um, uh, so the, the it government was it was the second of two major police actions. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so the the government, you know, decided that they were going to send all of the soldiers who were stationed in Vietnam on um, on a five day R and R trip, and it could be, you know, at first it was Hong Kong, and then it, w- it expanded to I think seven different cities um, in the. The, in Southeast Asia and the, the region, um, and they they said uh, at first that you know they really wanted to offer those five day trips uh, to everyone, but they they lacked um, the ability to transport them. You know the air travel issue was was the only thing standing in the way. So Pan Am really jumped into that, as they had with other um, global conflicts. Pan Am also um, helped the U.S. government in various ways at, uh, during World War II um, and the Korean War. So. Uh, which my book also talks about in, in more more detail than I'll go into here, um, but uh, but basically the um, they they Panem set up an airline within an airline in a way um, out of Hong Kong. They they um, sent sixty odd women out to live in Hong Kong and and a number of pilots and um, second lieutenants and and they all lived out there and, and ran these uh, flights for two years until the popularity of the program. Um, uh, really, almost you know, cannibalized the the base itself, and it because it meant that they had so much so much demand and so many flights that they needed more staff, more crew. So they decided to um, run the the flights out of uh, the larger operation in the region. That's um, there are so many fascinating aspects to this uh, to this book. Um, how how did you? decide what what things to include and what things not to include was that all based on anecdotal things from these women that that worked at or worked for pan am oh my gosh it was so hard um i i heard so many fascinating stories that you know i think if, if my research uh, taught me anything it's that you know i wrote a book i think there are probably seven more to write <laughs> so you know if, there are there are many different angles of, of really fascinating stories to um, to be mined. Um, I, I, it was really hard to decide what to include and not include. Um, I knew that I wanted to really uh, explore the um, uh, you know as I mentioned this kind of sense of, of duality uh, about the, an era that was really glamorous and it, it was very glamorous. You know, and the women did have um, a great amount of fun on the ground. They they loved going. Um, going to different cities and really exploring them. They loved um, going out to dinner with their friends in, in various global capitals, and they, they loved going out dancing and having crew parties and, you know, and going on dates. 
with, you know, really interesting men who were not exactly, who, who were very different from, you know, the men that they'd grown up with. Um, it really offered the ability, flying, to, um, to, to explore what your life could be, um, which was, was really exciting and new for um, young women of the, the mid-1960s. Um, and so I really, I wanted to focus on, on that aspect in conjunction with um, what they actually did and the real gravity and stakes of the job they did from the war flights to um, the, the lawsuits that a lot of women um, wound up bringing against the airlines because they, they didn't want to retire. They, they didn't want to quit when they were in their 30s or when they got married. They wanted to be able to keep flying, um, you know, to, to be both wives um, and workers, which was unprecedented in the United States. Um, and they, they, they really, their desire to keep their jobs um, and their willingness to go to court and to challenge the airlines in order to keep them uh, is what set the, the labor law precedent that wound up really changing the way that women um, interact in the workforce, the American workforce. You know, it's interesting. There was uh, a lot of societal pressure at that time for women to meet a man and get married. And and parents would often think in terms of, you know, while well, my daughter's going off to college and hopefully she'll meet a man and get married, never about what she would do post-graduate. <laughs> you know, it was... Um, that was that was the goal, and I imagine the same kind of uh, pressure was uh, being put to bear on these young women that worked uh, for Pan Am. Um, did a lot of women find husbands through their jobs as stewardesses? Do you think some of them did? Um, certainly, yeah. Uh, but but the thing to keep in mind is that they they found uh, if if they did, you know, so, so some of the women did. Uh, many of them did not. More of them did not than did. Um, but even those who did find these, you know, meet the loves of their lives in the air, whether they were pilots or passengers or, or a business person that they met um, in on a layover or, or a, a, a local person from a different country that they met on the layover, um, they met these men or married them on their own timelines. They, they, they weren't, um, you know, they were much less likely to to get married right out of college or even before college um, as they as had been the norm in the late 50s and early 60s you know by if, if you look at it statistically um, the the average age of, of marriage changed drastically from the early 1960s to the end of the 1960s um, women were getting married much older which you know says that they were doing it when they wanted to not when society told them that they had to which is a huge difference You know, it, it's um, you talk about the the caliber of these women in terms of they were young, beautiful, smart, and and accomplished, and very independent. Um, but then they were in often forced to resign just a few years after getting into that field. Um, did the women who were forced out because they aged out? of uh, being of the qualifications for being a stewardess did they find it difficult um to live in the real world some of them did and, and that again that's also another thing that really that i found really interesting um they they wound up uh staying in touch with one another in a way that was um again new for the era they they stayed in touch with their coworkers um and they they kept traveling together 
Um, a lot of them wound up going on to get graduate degrees um, and, and enter the workforce in a different way. Um, they, they really, they, they, um, they kept at it, and they really they worked to find a new role for women. Well, this is uh, this is fascinating. The uh, the book um, is uh, "Come Fly the World" by journalist and author Julia Cook. The Jet Age story of the women of Pan Am it features glamour, danger, liberation, and I love this phrase from the book jacket: "In a Mad Men era of commercial flight, Pan Am World Airways attracted the kinds of young women." Uh, or the the kind of young woman who wanted out and wanted up, and there's some great stories. It's it's uh, a great book. And Julia, thank you so much for spending uh, time and and sharing this uh, story with me and the listeners this morning. Um, it, I feel like we could talk about this for hours, as as I'm sure you've done many times. Um, Julia. Just one final thought. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. But do you have a website so people can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future? Yeah. I have a website, and the book has a website. We we live in um, it's a similar similar thing, but different different URLs. So people can find um, more information about the book at comeflytheworld.com and more information about me, um, and also the book, at uh, juliacook, C-O-O-K-E, dot com. Well, Julia, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Take care. Now, again, that was uh, journalist and author Julia Cook talking about her uh, newest book just came out, Come Fly the World. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight <laughs> comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, Superman! Transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable.
This is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. 
The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Summer Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. We have two poodles, two little poodles named Willard and Wilbur. They're toy poodles, and they came out of the same letter. There were two of them. And uh, I have nothing against poodles. They're very nice, as a matter of fact, or dogs. I'm not advising you not to get dogs, but don't get two dogs. I'll tell you the problem. Uh, the problem is if you go out and then when you come back, you will find a message for you from one of them, usually on the carpet or something like that. <laughs> and the problem is with two poodles, you don't know which one did it, you see. It's a case of the phantom strikes again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you can't, you can't punish both of them because the one who went on the paper figures, well, they don't want it there, so... Uh, <laughs> I'll do it on the couch next time. I don't know. But we, we had them up in Vegas. I was just up in, in Las Vegas. And we flew up, and I don't dig flying a great deal. I take what's known as a white-knuckle flight in the airline business. I, and uh, I'm not even too wild about the ramp that, you know, I have to get drunk to get on the ramp to get into the plane. I didn't used to mind flying when, uh, when they had the props going, because when I fly, I like a lot of noise going on on the wings, when, you know. But when you're on the jets now, they just have the pods out there, and you're sitting there, and you're looking out, and they're going and you're saying, they're probably on. No, I'm sure. No, I know they're on. I know they're on. Oh, yeah. And then, then before you take off, this has nothing to do with it. It doesn't prove anything. It hasn't got to do with maintenance or anything, but they have a checklist they go through. This is just for the passengers. It makes them feel better. Uh, the pilot or the, the stewardess, whoever happens to be flying the particular flight here, uh, <laughs> comes out and kicks the tires. Now this... this this is very reassuring, you know, when you're about to fly over mountains and everything. It's sort of like checking for a new car or something. And then, after that, uh, they count the engines. You know. One, two, three, four. And I don't mind that too much. When they check it against the list to see whether they're right or not, this bothers me a little bit, so it's kind of weird. But it's very strange, they have new rate tables now. There's a big competitive thing among airlines. And they have rate plans. They all have to charge the same rate, but they have ways of getting around it. Like we went up there on Thursday. This is family day. See, now this costs you less if you go on family day. Then we took a night flight, which is less. And we took prop, which is less. And we took coach, which is even less. Well, it turned out the airline paid us $4. <laughs> To, to go to Las Vegas. 
This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. The Tom 